There's an old saying, knowledge is power. Many of us live by this proverb. We go to college and send our children to college so that we can acquire the knowledge we need to get good jobs and live happy lives. While I think this is a good thing, a very good thing, it also has negative side effects. When we view knowledge as a means of getting ahead, then knowledge becomes a commodity that can be monetized. We have knowledge that someone else doesn't have, and if they want to benefit from this knowledge, either by learning it themselves or through its application, they have to pay us. In this way, knowledge divides us and allows us to set ourselves up above others. We become an educated elite, a tension that many of us feel in our nation today. Knowledge worked in the same way in the ancient world. For example, the temple authorities used their knowledge of scripture to set themselves up as an elite group of folks who lived off the backs of the average Galilean and Judean. Jesus repeatedly criticizes them for this. But in the resurrection, the tables are turned. The bottom line, no matter how hard we try to monetize the good news, it will always break free from the tomb we try to seal with a stone or from the room we keep locked. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Christ is risen. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. We just finished our study of the Epistle of St. James. While I think about what we'll study next, I want to take a few weeks and explore the Paschal lectionary readings. The Church, in her wisdom, has decided that the Gospel for the Paschal season should be the Gospel of John. In fact, one of my former seminary professors, Father John Bear, wrote an entire book about the Gospel of John. In that book, he makes the argument that the entire Holy Week and Paschal Cycle was developed by the Johannine School. That very well may be. At any rate, the Gospel reading for Pascha night at the liturgy is the first 17 verses of the first chapter of John. But today I want to discuss the reading for the first Sunday after Pascha, which is John 20, 19-31. So let's hear the passage This comes from the New English Translation. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you retain anyone's sins, they are retained. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, 
was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the wounds from the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a lot in that passage to discuss. A post-resurrection appearance, the peace that Jesus gives the disciples, the Jesus breathing the Holy Spirit upon them moment, and Thomas and his doubts. But I want to discuss the locked doors and their symbolism. On one level, this is a part of the story, a literary or historical detail. From this perspective, it makes the story come to life. It draws you into the story and it allows you to visualize the scene. It allows directors something to work with if they wanted to film the scene. But, as you know, neither the Church Fathers nor myself will allow it to rest there. So let's dig deeper and allow ourselves to wonder, what can the locked doors represent? Locked doors means the doors are shut. The disciples, first without Thomas, and then later with Thomas, are shut in. They are localized and static. They've retreated into an inner space, and as a result, they aren't interacting with anyone. Not the Romans, not the Judeans, not Samaritans, nor other Galileans. This is a very important observation. In other words, if the disciples are shut up indoors, they are also shut up, speech-wise. They aren't preaching the good news of a crucified and risen Messiah. It's become a secret. It's at this point that we jump into the symbolism of Scripture, that is, a deeper meaning of Scripture. It's here that we also start to seek the spiritual understanding of the passage. We know that the disciples are hiding out of fear. I can't fully grasp the fear they would have had. They had just watched the Judeans and the Romans crucify their teacher. A teacher, I might add, that they thought would summon angels from heaven to overthrow the Romans. So much for that idea. So if they could crucify the man they thought was the new anointed king of Israel, what would happen to them? However, scripturally speaking, this isn't the first time that we've seen something shut up. Just last week, during Holy Week, we heard the story of another person who is shut in, just as the disciples are shut in in John 20. Here's what we read. Now an evening had already come, since it was the day of preparation, 
that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a highly regarded member of the council, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. He called the centurion and asked him if he had been dead for some time. When Pilate was informed by the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. After Joseph bought a linen cloth and took down the body, he wrapped it in a linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. That was Mark 15, 42-46. Most of us probably don't think much about this passage. Again, we probably hear it as just another historical detail. Here's what happened to the body of Jesus after the resurrection. It was buried. In fact, we probably think this is a nice story. Look how honorable Joseph is. He took the time to bury our Lord. But think about it. Scripturally, does this story make any sense? Especially if you've been paying attention to Mark as you read through his gospel. Well, let's go back and look at a few passages from Mark. This is Mark 8, 31-32. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer for many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke openly about this. Now let's jump to Mark 9, 30-31. But Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And now let's jump to Mark 10, 33-34. Look, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and experts in the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him severely, and kill him. Yet, after three days, he will rise again. Notice, he's taught the disciples and us, as the hearers of the gospel, that he must rise from the dead. And we've heard it at least three times. So, if we believed our teacher that he was going to rise from the dead, why would we shut him up in a tomb? Why would we roll a rock in front of that entrance? A rock so heavy, the myrrh-bearing women weren't sure how they were going to get into the tomb to anoint Jesus. And why would we praise Joseph the Arimathean for hiding Christ and trying to lock him in? So now we have two instances of locked doors, the sealed tomb and the disciples who have locked themselves in after the resurrection. I don't think this is any accident. I don't think it's simply an historical detail. I think it's an image, an icon of the religious institution of Jesus' day. The Israelites as God's people, were meant to be a light unto the nations. They were meant to bring all nations to God. But instead, they turned the temple into an institution. They turned it into a business that made them right. 
They turned it into an institution that made them important people. They turned it into an institution that allowed the priests to live off the backs of the people. In other words, they had tried to shut God in. They tried to lock him away in the temple, keep him for themselves. Scripture and God was a knowledge that they could monetize. If you don't believe me, just ask Matthew. Here's chapter 23, verses 1 through 37, which I believe deserves to be quoted in full. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The experts in the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy loads hard to carry and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing even to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces, and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and are you all are brothers. And call no one father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven, nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you neither enter nor permit those trying to enter to go in. Woe to you experts in the law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by an oath. Blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You are blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits on it. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You give a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, yet swallow a camel. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you look righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy 
and lawlessness. Woe to you experts in the law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of your ancestors. You snakes, you offspring of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? For this reason I am sending you prophets and wise men and experts in the law, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that on you will come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, this generation will be held responsible for all these things. If I had to summarize this passage, it would be, woe to the religious institutions because they've shut up the gospel. They've shut up the gospel just like Joseph of Arimathea tried to shut up Jesus in a tomb. They've shut up the gospel just as the disciples were shut up in that room after Christ's rising from the dead. But the good news is that the good news won't remain shut up. I think that's the point of the story. I think that's the point of the gospel lesson we read on the first Sunday after Pascha. Even though the disciples were doing their best to hide, and remember, they are the apostles, and apostle means sent. They were the ones who were sent to preach the good news. So even though they were doing their best to hide, Jesus still gets past the locks. He still was able to show them that he is risen. In other words, the temple institution may have done its best to try to monetize God. They may have shut up the message and tried to lock him into the temple institution, but the resurrection undoes all of that. Jesus can't be shut up by tombs or locks. This is a message that still resonates today. Many of us try to keep the good news shut up, We use the excuse that there's a separation between church and state. We tell ourselves that what we believe is a personal matter. But despite our human weakness, the gospel can't be contained. It cannot be shut up. So go out and proclaim to all that Christ is risen.